Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, the places a dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 420 is recorded live September 19th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where things are going about as we expect. <laughs> a little bit of crazy, and uh, we're heading here on in the winter. So Max here tonight, but he's not able to get on. He's fighting with a microphone and audio problems, so we're going to get started with the show, and he'll jump in if he gets things sorted out like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Brandon, we have Eric, we have Mac. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article comes from Undercurrent Magazine, and uh, they had a little bit of a discussion about liveaboard safety. Uh, they said, after the conception strategy, we're led to think about safety of liveaboards on which we had traveled worldwide. Have you ever been concerned about a boat's layout, about the crew competence at the time of the problem, about your sleeping quarters? the battery chargers, the night watch, uh, the requesting feedback. They said they'd like to hear your views and concerns and whether you take any special precautions. Uh, one thing that, that people have commented about, they said uh, firefighters tell us that most fires start in the kitchen and are attributed to careless use of cigarettes. Recent events have made us more aware of this potential hazard. Smoking is common, commonly banned in places at work and public areas for health reason, but fire affects everyone, especially in a boat. It would be relatively easy to ban smoking on American liveaboards, but less so in foreign countries where smoking is fairly common. Do you think smoking should be banned aboard? Atomic has a regulator hose recall. Hirsch Outdoors are calling some atomic regulator hoses with low-pressure hose swivel next to the second stage. Affected hoses have a hose crimp that bears the date stamp. D0717, if you have any doubts, uh, you can call Roger Shark at 310-947-8523 or email him at uh, a picture of a crimp. Take your regular regulator to Atomic Dealer Aquatics has sent kits uh, to some affected customers, but free repair should still be done by a trained technician. Contact service at 888-270-8595, extension 4 at aalphose at hirishoutdoors.com for instructions. The hoses should be returned to Hirish Outdoors. Another thing they're talking about is uh, make sure you check your tank valve that's fully open. Before diving, take a couple of breaths on your regulator while you're checking your pressure. Gauge needle stays steady. Shockingly, uh, sucking strongly on most regulators first with a tank valve shut. Goodness assures you that there are no leaks. If this doesn't work, if you have an atomic regulator, both as a primary and alternate air source because of its unique design. And not having an atomic, I'm not sure what they're talking about. If uh, I think they may be talking about that leaks, that you can't use it to check if there's leaks because uh, there must be something in the way the loop works. 
And then uh, Chinese tourist is sorry for uh, scuba tank pranks. This is on a diving trip in the Philippines. A Chinese tourist has apologized for closing the valves on two divers' tanks while they're diving a group tour the Philippines, saying it was just a prank. One of the divers who'd used his partner's oxygen tank when a supply was shut off said he was seeking legal advice and may report the man to Chinese police. Two separate incidents happened last week in waters off Porto Galera, Madeira, where the divers were on a group tour from China. On Wednesday, one diver, surname Yu, suddenly had trouble breathing when he was at depth of 15 meters and signaled the instructor that he was in trouble, according to the report. The instructor gave Yu his backup tank and, after checking, reopened the valve. I didn't notice anything at the time when the tank valve was actually closed, but I couldn't breathe. I knew immediately that someone must have closed it, you told the newspaper. He said another diver told him that he had seen a group member identified as Tai Lao from Shanghai later trying to tamper the used tank for a second time. According to you, Lao had threatened to close the scuba tank valve before they went diving, and after the incident, he decided to join a different group the next day. But Lao struck again on Thursday, closing the scuba tank of another diver identified as Da Young. According to the report, the pair had apparently not met before the incident. They were about 10 meters down, and he bumped into me several times as he was diving around me, Da Hun said. I didn't pay much attention at first. When I suddenly couldn't breathe, I realized he had been trying to close the valve of my tank. After using his partner's tank to breathe while the diver helped reopen the valve, Da Hung complained about Lao's behavior. The group instructor, Lao, apologized for his actions, saying it was just a prank done without thinking of the consequences. This according to a screenshot of the group chat on social network WeChat. But you told newspaper you did not ex- accept the explanation. It's like sabotaging somebody with a knife and saying it was just a joke. Uh, sabotaging, stabbing. On Friday, Lao again took to WeChat saying the post that he apologized for shutting off the oxygen tanks, putting these two divers' lives in danger. I have apologized to both of them, and I now know how idiotic my behavior was and will take the lessons from this and strictly abide by the safety rules when I go diving in the future. Uh, reportedly, the incident wasn't uh, re- uh, sent to local police, but Deng Hao uh, uh, was following up with a lawyer in China. And if you've been following the news, you saw the issue on the east coast of the U.S. for the Golden Ray. That was a car carrier had tipped over. Uh, all the people on board were eventually saved. So there was, I think there was 10 crew members uh, that were rescued. But now they got the problem with this large vessel laying on its side. Uh, first, uh, the vessel called the Golden Ray is 656-foot freighter, and it's currently sitting in the St. Simmons Sounds. A massive salvage operation is being held by Don John Marine Company, incorporated, headquartered in Hillside, New Jersey, that specializes in solving complex, large-scale maritime calamity, calamities, such as the one now foundering in local water. Coast Guard officials said that the view of the Golden Dawn's massive starboard side sticking out of the water between Simmons and Jekyll Islands could uh, be, goodness, could be visible on the watery horizon for some time to come. In these early stages, salvaging experts are concerned with not what to do, but how best to proceed. So currently what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out how to make, uh, how to avoid this becoming an ecological disaster. The vessel uh, can be loaded with up to 4,200 vehicles. 
the crew rescued, uh, I said 10, it was 20 members uh, based out of the Philippines and South Korea. Uh, they're hoping to lift the vessel up in one piece. The vessel weighs 25,000 tons. It currently has 300,000 gallons of fuel on board. 4,300 feet of contaminant absorbent booms have been placed in the water near the ship, and they're hoping to protect an ecologically sensitive bird island nearby. They're letting everybody know recreational boats must stay at least 150 yards away, and ships of 500 gross tons or more must keep a half nautical mile distance from the shipwreck. Then how's this for something that you don't see every day? A Canadian boy diving with a GoPro helped solve a 1992 cold case. This was in uh, Canada last month. Helped solve the case of a woman who went missing 27 years ago. Teenager Max Werneka was out in a boat ride in August in Griffin Lake near Ravelstroke, British Columbia, when his family runs a business renting out cabins he spotted a vehicle underwater. They initially assumed the vehicle was related to a 2009 incident where a vehicle had crashed into the lake, so they didn't think too much of it. They mentioned it to the Royal Canadian Mountain Police officer who happened to be visiting the next day. Uh, we told him about the vehicle in the lake and why they would not have removed the car. He said, well, they did. What are you talking about? Uh, Revelstoke RCMP came to the Griffin Lake on August 21st and went out with a boat to see the vehicle, but the angle of the sun made it difficult to see much underwater. So uh, Max brought out his GoPro, took a personal dive in the lake to get a video of the submerged vehicle up close. Three days later, the police and a local tow company returned to the lake, recovered the older Honda, Honda Accord, and it had an adult woman's body inside. Body was that of Janet Ferris of Mill Bay, British Columbia, who had gone missing in fall of 1992 as she was driving to a wedding in Alberta. I think the worst thing was not knowing, her son, 62 year old George Ferris, said. We kind of assumed that maybe she had gone off the road or fallen asleep or tried to avoid an accident or an animal on the road. Griffin Lake is right along the Trans Canadian Highway, and the RCMP believed that the vehicle drove off the highway into the lake. Ferris said Discovery's mother brought answers to nearly three decades of mystery. Given the sad situations, it's the best outcome. Uh, Nancy said she learned about the identification a few days ago and that her heart goes out to the Ferris family. I just feel for them that 27 years a loved one's missing. How do you deal with that? She said she was proud of her son for helping find the vehicle and handling the immediate attention that has come with it. He's only 13, but very mature. So you never know. You know, cars don't belong in the water like that so it's always a good idea to, to investigate and report them you kind of wonder that anytime we're out underwater and you see a car your your heart just stops for a second then here's another search going on divers take on a blackwater mission to solve a stranger's 44 year old cold case and i'm not going to read this whole article but we'll have it in the show notes and it's a very detailed, long story, and it, it talks about why people go in the water and, and help search for things that are missing. And what this one is, is it's, uh, let me see if I can sum it up real quickly. Yeah, uh, it's uh, Benbrook Lake. Uh, Jeff Burns describes the first time he heard about the cars in Benbrook Lake as a kick in the gut. 
the Burleson native and his wife were in a boutique that overheard someone talking about the case of a missing Fort Worth trio. Three girls had gone missing 44 years ago, and one of their brothers thought the three cars in the lake might hold answers. Burns, who's a scuba diver for Artifact Recovery, asked Rusty Arnold's information and called him immediately. I can get the cars out of the lake for you, he told him. Arnold was taken aback. He said, in 44 years, nobody would help me. I've never heard of you. I've never seen you. I've never met you. But why would you go be willing to risk your life for someone you've never met? Jeff Burns recalls his conversation with Arnold. And I said, how long have you been all dealing with this? He said, 44 years. And I said, don't you think that's long enough? And then the article goes on and talks about uh, their search and uh, what they find. None of the divers involved asked for payment. All of them get paid for their gear out of pocket. The dive team has raised $15,000 through fundraisers, GoFundMe pages, and private donations to buy diving equipment such as generators and air tanks. So it's, it's a good article worth a read. And then some other divers helping out. Volunteer scuba divers embark on an underwater cleanup expedition of the St. Lawrence. One year to the day, a woman dubbed as the mermaid of the St. Lawrence Seaway after having completed a two-day underwater expedition is back to action propelling Ocean Cleanup 360. For me to go back in the water cleanup is just giving back to nature. Half of all Quebecers and 80% of the Montrealers get their drinking water from the St. Lawrence River, a major source that's clearly in need of a major cleanup. The river is pretty important, so damn important because I can't drink water. In three to five days, I'm basically going to be dead, so I need to take care of the water on top of that. It's a gorgeous river. So they teamed up with other other local environmental groups to clean up the river and the banks. The goal is a 24-hour blitz that's remove one ton of debris. Close to 80 scuba divers and volunteers are spending the day and night underwater until noon on Sunday. Within minutes of their underwater mission, cleanup crews fished out a rusted metal bin, a skateboard, and dozens of beer bottles. So I think with the amount of time and the amount of divers they have, they should have no problem reaching their goal. Uh, They say that Operation Cleanup 360 will continue throughout the year in different locations around the island of Montreal, uh, funded in part by the federal government's Climate Change Initiative. And then down in Jamaica, they're working on restoring some coral reefs. Everton Simpson, uh, let's see. Having a hard time following this one. Yeah, this this one really it's a it's much better videos than an article. Uh, again, we'll have it in show notes. But what they're starting to do is uh, this is one of the spots down there where at one point they had lost eighty five percent of the reefs around Jamaica. Uh, much of this started in the eighties and nineties and has continued on uh, in the last ten years. More than a dozen grassroots-run coral nurseries and fishing sanctuaries has sprung up, supported by small grants from founders, local businesses such as hotels and scuba clinics, and the Jamaican government. At the Whitefish River Fish Sanctuary, which is only about two years old where Simpson works, the clearest proof of early success is the return of tropical fish that inhabit the reefs, as well as hungry pelicans skimming the surface of the water to feed on them. The solution was to create a protected area, for immature fish to reach reproductive age before they're caught. Most of the more established fishermen who own boats and set out lines and wire cages have come to accept the no-fishing zone, but some younger men still hunt with lightweight spear guns swimming out to sea and firing at close range. 
these men, some of them poor with few options, are the most likely trespassers. Once it became clear that no fishing zones actually helped nearby fishing populations rebound, it became easier to build support. The number of fish in the Bay Sanctuary nearly doubled between 2011 and 2017, according to Jamaica's National Environment Planning Agency, and that boost catches in the surrounding areas. The fishermen are mostly on board and happy. That's distinct. That's why it's working, the sanctuary manager uh, Wilmot says. Brendan Marrow, a lifelong water sports enthusiast who runs the White River Marine Association's notes that in Jamaica, we all depend on the oceans. If we don't have a good, healthy reef and good, healthy marine environment, we'll lose much, and too much of the county relies on the sea. That's not every day you can say you found something like this, and and it's still up to debate to see if they actually have found this. Uh, an anchor believed to be from St. Paul's shipwreck identified. Researchers have claimed to identify the anchor of St. Paul's shipwreck in the island of Malta. According to Christian tradition, the apostle was shipwrecked on the Mediterranean island during an ill-fated first-century journey to Rome. The ship sunk a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move. The stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. Once safely on shore, we found that the island was called Malta. This is uh, according to the Acts of the Apostles. Acts also notes four anchors were dropped from the ship and subsequently cut loose, enabling the ship to run aground. The Bible Archaeological Search and Exploration, BASE Institute, believes that it has identified evidence of the shipwreck, which occurred in 60 AD. In a post on the organization's website, Bay said it found four ancient anchors that were covered by local divers, adding that only one of the anchors has survived. The fourth anchor was preserved as part of the deceased diver's legacy to his widow. The organization, which is led by Bob Cranuk, or Cornuk, also believes the shipwreck happened in St. Thomas Bay in Malta, southern coast, as opposed to what is now known as St. Paul's Bay in the north of the island. Citing maritime charts and the biblical description of the area where the ship ran aground, base believes the St. Thomas Bay has all the earmarks of a prime suspect with regard to the wreck's location. Citing base to express reports that the four anchors found by local divers were recovered from St. Thomas Bay in the 60s. Could this verifiably be an anchor from Paul's ship, which lay alongside three others for nearly 2,000 years until recovered just a few years ago? As with any historic claim, the best we can do is examine the evidence in term of probability, but the evidence for the anchors of St. Paul's shipwreck is virtually excuse me, overwhelming. Critics, however, say that there's a lack of evidence to support the base theory, and a question mark still lingers over the wreck's actual location. Another anchor marked with ancient inscriptions was discovered off Selene in the north coast of Malta in 2005, for example, has also been touted as possibly linked to St. Paul's shipwreck. Fox News has reached out to the Base Institute and University of Malta with a request for comment on the story. So, is it possible? Certainly, but, you know, I would want a little bit more solid information. Um, you know, four anchors at different times pulled out. I mean, when you're talking about locations like this, who's to say they're all from the same ship or from different ships? Captain Cook's Endeavor shipwreck possibly discovered off of Rhode Island. It sailed around the world in the 1700s and considered one of the most famous research ships. 
They said it could still be months or even years before the shipwreck can be positively identified. Maritime archaeologists spent decades hunting down the ship, which was scuttled in the British, oh, by the British in Newport Harbor in 1778 in an effort to block French ships during the American War of Independence. Principal investigator Kathy Abbas of Rhode Island Maritime Archaeology Archaeological Project said positive identification of the wreck would probably depend on several things rather than a single archaeological find. We do not think we're going to find anything that says Captain Cook slept here, and that's not likely. But if we find something of smaller stuff that's consistent with how we know she was used as a transport and as a prison ship in Newport, we would know we have got her. Samples of wood taken from the keel and stern to the Newport Harbor taken during underwater excavations over the last three weeks are now being sent to the laboratory for testing. The results expected later this year could show Elmwood was used in construction. Another indicator it could be Cook's Endeavor, which is thought to have an Elm keel. Everything we see this year is consistent with it being the Endeavor, and we have seen nothing that says it can't be. Then they go on and they talk about some of the history of the, the vessel. Uh, some good photos in the articles, and uh, they had a nice little uh, scan, uh, kind of did a composite uh, 3D model of the wooden hull frames from the shipwreck. Investigators aren't sure if this is the wreck or not. And this last article is a little bit of potentially cool scuba gear. That is, if you have a little bit of money, this is a press release. Uh, Treasure and Ship Recovery Incorporated, or TSR, uh, announced its brand-new cesium magnetometer was delivered today. The following is an explanation of what this means by TSR Chief Operating Officer and internationally known shipwreck expert Dr. E. Lee Spence. There's a little bit of warning. This is, of course, a press release, so it's a little bit hyped up. Uh, what he's describing, he says, this isn't an off-the-shelf item that you can buy at your local dive shop or treasure hunting store. It's a state-of-the-art piece of scientific equipment costing almost $40,000. Our new magnetometer is a model G882AR-4, made special order for us by Geometrics in San Jose, California. To my eyes, it's a real beauty, he said. Underwater magnetometers are simply known as mags to those in the shipwreck treasure business, measure anomalies, various in Earth's magnetic field, which are caused by the presence of iron and other magnetic properties. Although a mag can't detect Gold or silver can detect iron cannons, cannonballs, muskets, pistols, cutlass, and for centuries uh, were used to protect large equipment of coins, bullions, and other wealth. Okay, so he's going on just trying to say, hey, we can't find the gold, but if we can find the things that were around the gold, then we're going to find the gold. So, uh, you know, they're hyping it up a little bit. Uh, I would think in a large-scale operation, $40,000 isn't a huge amount of money, but... I have a feeling that they're trying to uh, uh, prop up their stock price or generate a little bit of interest one way or the other. Uh, you know, magnetometer is great. We like to use them for hunting for shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. Uh, you know, a lot of vessels past a certain time had a boiler. So if you can find the boiler, you can find something else. You can also find anchors, uh, large metal objects. So uh, considering that most of the bottom has nothing on it, uh, anything that can be sensed to the magnetometer is great. So it's on my wish list. You know, hummingbirds and those type of devices have gotten less expensive, but magnetometers are still up there. Uh, I did do some searching a little bit earlier today, and you can rent them. So for approximately, uh, 
you know, anywhere from 500 to $600 for the first day and then another two to $300 each additional day you could rent one. So if you got, you know, want to do a little bit of mowing the lawn and help discover from Rex, you can get something uh, pretty similar. Maybe not this exact model, which you're saying was uh, custom made, but you can put one together and uh, helps narrow the search just a tiny bit. So that does it for scuba in the news. I know that we did have some divers get out into the water this last week. There was a plan for a dive in Lake Michigan that got blown off. So they ended up doing a little bit of Lake 16 diving. So as Mac has said in previous weeks, if you're not getting out there and doing some diving, uh, we don't know what you're waiting for. Uh, conditions are not going to get any better than, than they are right now. Uh, I see some scuttlebutt going on in the chat room and in Facebook that there's some dives coming up. The Mud Club did end up canceling their underwater recovery dive. Uh, so that, I would say underwater recovery, but uh, ecology dive. Uh, the the water conditions were just going too hard. So uh, in the desire for safety, uh, it's been canceled for this year. So we'll we'll try and do it again next year. And then uh, hopefully we get back on next week, uh, give a little bit of help, and we'll do some tuning up on his computer. But uh, he did end up getting to a uh, lecture where A&R Taurus Lysenko was talking about uh, his new book and some of the discoveries. So I'd like to hear what Mac heard from that. Well, I think what we're going to do this week is we're going to cut it a little bit short. So we're going to skip out of the, uh, the scuba joke. And hopefully I can edit something together that uh, at least sounds somewhat coherent. So until next time, go out there and get wet. Get wet.